So in these days together on this retreat, we've offered um, quite, a, quite a good number of different methods and techniques. And the, the basis of it all um, has been, as, we, as we've been saying right from the beginning, is the combination of the, my, the mindfulness and the, the interest, the investigation factor. And the, the techniques we've, we've offered have ranged from beginning with the breathing in the belly, feeling the ground, um, just resting with the breathing, the body scan, um, opening to the whole body, being mindful of the feelings, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, mindfulness of the mind states. Um, what have we got? The hearing, um, thinking, um, chi ball, <laughs> standing in stillness, standing with movement. Quite a, quite a range of, of different methods and techniques. And I thought that um, this evening, just to kind of put it all in a, in a context and maybe help to organize it for you, I thought I would just read through the Buddha's main discourse on mindfulness and um, give you a sense of where all these different techniques come from. It's not just me and Brad making them up. And, um, and perhaps put them in a context. And then I'd like to comment on a few sections of the, of the discourse. So the, um, the, the Buddha begins this discourse by saying, bhikkhus, addressing the monks, the bhikkhus, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, Bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest, or to the wood of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. <coughs> Excuse me. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him, ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he understands I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body of the breath. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body of the breath. He trains thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. Just as a skilled tuner or his apprentice when making a long turn, understands I make a long turn, or when making a short turn, understands I make a short turn. So too, breathing in long, breathing out long, breathing in short, breathing out short, etc., he understands I breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. In this way, he abides, contemplating the body as a body, or else, he abides contemplating in the body its arising factors, or he abides contemplating in the body its vanishing factors. 
only abides contemplating in the body both its arising and vanishing factors. Or else, mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Should sound familiar. Yes? Again, bhikkhus, when walking, a bhikkhu understands I'm walking. When standing, he understands I'm standing. When sitting, he understands I am sitting. When lying down, he understands I am lying down. Or he understands accordingly, however his body is disposed. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Again, because a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and ball, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Again, because a bhikkhu reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, bounded by skin, as full of many kinds of impurities thus, in this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. <laughs> <laughs> Just as though they were a bag with an opening at both ends, <laughs> full of many sorts of grain, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, and a man with good eyes were to open it and review it thus, this is hill rice, this is red rice, these are beans, etc., so too a bhikkhu reviews this same body as full of many kinds of impurities thus. In this body there are head hairs, in this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, both internally and externally, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu would use the same body, however displaced, however disposed, as consisting of elements. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice had killed a cow and was seated at the crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too a bhikkhu reviews this same body as consisting of elements. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body. Again, bhikkhus, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, worms, a bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body, too, is of the same nature and is not exempt from that fate. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a shin bone, there a thigh bone, here a hip bone, there a backbone, 
your rib bone, breast bone, arm bone, shoulder bone, neck bone, jaw bone, tooth. They're the skull. A bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. This too is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Again, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel gun, bones bleached white, the color of shells, bones heaped up, bones rotted and crumbled to dust. A bhikkhu compares the same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body internally, or he abides contemplating the body as a body externally, or he abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally. Or else, he abides contemplating in the body its arising factors, or he abides contemplating its vanishing factors, or he abides contemplating both arising and vanishing factors. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. So this finishes the section on body. We're about um, almost halfway through the discourse. So. You see, he gives a lot of attention to body. And how because does a bhikkhu abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, he understands, I feel a painful feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Um, going to start skipping over some, some of the repetition. Um, in this way, he abides contemplating feelings as feelings. Um, or else, he abides contemplating in feelings their arising factors, or he abides contemplating in feelings their vanishing factors. Or he abides contemplating both their arising and vanishing factors. Or else mindfulness that there is feeling is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. He understands exalted mind as exalted mind and and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. In this way, he abides contemplating mind as mind and repeats the same as with the other, with the body and the feelings. And how because does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects? Here a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five hindrances. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five hindrances? Here there being sensual desire in him, he understands there is sensual desire in me. There being no sensual desire in him, he understands there is no sensual sensual desire in me. And he also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire. And then he goes through the same thing with ill will, with sloth and torpor, with restlessness, and with doubt. 
In this way, he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Or else he abides contemplating in mind objects their arising factors. Or he abides contemplating in mind objects their vanishing factors, or both. Again, because a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging. And this is a theme that we didn't go into and I, on, on the retreat at all. And um, it's a big one. <laughs> don't want to go into it. But basically, um, the, um, the, the, five, the five aggregates are material form or body, feelings, perception, mental formations, all the content of the mind, and consciousness. And so he, he says, being mindful of these, of these five aggregates and being mindful of their, um, their formations, their origin, their disappearance. In this way, he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Again, because a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the six internal and external bases. So the, the, six, internal, the six internal bases are the six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, mouth, tongue, touch, and the mind. The six external sense bases are the objects, the visual objects, the sounds, the smells, etc. So he abides, he abides um, understanding these. He understands the eye, he understands form, and he understands the fetter that arises, the tie that arises dependent on both. He also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen fetter and how there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen fetter. And similarly with, with all of the, the senses. In this way he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Again, because a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. And the, the seven enlightenment factors are, see if I can remember them now, um, mindfulness, investigation, or interest. Okay, so these are the first two. And these are the, the, the factors, the qualities that we've been emphasizing. So these are the first two of seven enlightenment factors. So there's mindfulness, and there's the investigation, and then there's energy rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So these are the seven factors that the Buddha says are, are necessary for, for liberation, for freedom. Um, and then he, he talks about recognizing there is each of these factors and there isn't each of these factors. Recognizing when they're present, when they're not present, and giving attention to the arising and the non-arising of them. In this way, he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. And a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So the, the Four Noble Truths, um, most of you, I think, are familiar with this. So the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha outlined um, as a kind of a summary of of his, of his insights and his discoveries. So the first noble truth is the fact that in life we experience dukkha. We experience stress, suffering, anguish, um, dissatisfaction with life, an inability to be at ease, to be at peace in life. So that's the first. The second noble truth is that there's a cause and the cause of that, the Buddha identified as craving and clinging, that holding on, the attachment. And the third noble truth is the ending, the ending of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, which I referred to a couple of nights without, without repeating the whole, all, all eight of them. So he says he abides contemplating, he, he understands the Four Noble Truths. 
In this way, he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. So if you remember yesterday morning or this morning, yesterday morning, I mentioned the four, the four foundations of mindfulness, and I said that the fourth is mindfulness of the teachings. And so this is this one. So then he, um, he says, um, Bickers, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. Okay, so seven years to practice. Okay? Let alone seven years, if anyone should develop for a foundation of mindfulness in such a way for six years, for five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year, one of two fruits could be expected for him. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. Let alone one year, because if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month, let alone half a month, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for him. We're two days short. <laughs> so, so it was with reference to this that it was said, because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So, most of this should, should sound familiar to you from, from what we've been saying. So, just a couple of things I want to comment on. Um, first is, um, let's see, where do we start? Um, the body scan. The body scan. Bicker reviews the same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair. And then he goes on to this description of the body, which is a little bit different than the way I described it as we were doing the body scan. And, uh, <laughs> and um, we, we, we've tended in the West to tone down the body scan a bit. But the, the, the point... An an important point with the body scan is that it really is intended, and and this is really important if you're using the body scan as a practice. The intention is is really very much that it's an exploration of the body. It's not, it doesn't have the intention of just going through the body and getting nice tingly feelings and and getting nice and pleasant and having a nice flow through the whole body and, and being able to sit still and blissed out in the body. It's a real investigation of body. And, and, and the Buddha is pointing out that the body isn't just all nice, tingly vibrations and feelings and, and, and so on. The, the body has a lot of not-so-nice bits to it. <laughs> and, 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 and he points out all these not-so-nice bits. And, and the reason he points out all these, these bits is, is that... He's, he's asking us in, in, in all of these in all of these these techniques in all of these mindfulnesses he's asking us to really look into who we are we're looking into the body we're looking into the mind we're giving very very deep and profound attention to body and mind to really explore it and see what is body mind what is me because when we identify ourselves, when I identify me, the identification is generally through body-mind. I identify myself with body-mind. And, and the Buddha, the Buddha is, is pointing out all the, the not-so-nice bits of body here as, as a way of kind of maybe hoping to raise the question, um, to raise a question why would I want to identify with this as me? And, and the intention is, is to explore the body in a way that we come to, to an understanding, and, and this is one aspect, and I'll come to the other aspect of it later. Um, 
to 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 understand the um, the unsatisfactoriness of the body. The body really is, if we look at it really honestly, it's it, you know it's it's quite it's quite miraculous how well it does serve us, <laughs> and and how well it does function. But in the end, we really have very little control over the body. And in the end, the body does tend to let us down, doesn't it? <laughs> Things happen to the body that we don't have any control over. And yet this is what we so easily identify with as me. But if the body is really me, why can't I keep it strong and healthy and, and, and living forever or forever? Why does it get sick? Why does it get weak? Why does it break down in different ways? Why does it have all these nasty bits? <laughs> all these not-so-nice bits. So, so the intention is, is to come to understand the body in a way that there can be a, a letting go, a releasing of this personal identification with body. And, and this, this releasing of the identification with body is, is, is a release from a, a real limitation that we impose on ourselves. We impose limitations on ourselves. Oh, I'm, I'm too skinny, or I'm too fat, or I'm too weak, or I'm too strong, or I'm whatever. We, we identify with the body in, in, in ways that we, we limit ourselves. So if I believe I'm, I'm too weak, then that will inhibit me from trying things that I may be able to do. It puts a limit. So, so the, 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 the releasing of this personal identification with body brings a freedom. He's also pointing at seeing the body as it actually is, because we do sometimes have idealized images and visions of, of the body. You know, sometimes we have an idea of what we look like, and we get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, oh, that's not me. <laughs> so it's, it's getting in touch with the body as it actually is. And through that, through that getting in touch with it as it actually is, just releasing the grip on body, releasing that personal grip. So next time you're doing the body scan, go a little bit deeper, <laughs> go a little bit deeper in and look more closely at what's actually here. Um, This, um, this, uh, this section on the um, on the corpses, <laughs> contemplating the corpses, is a, is a is a very interesting one. In in Thailand, they actually have as a practice for the monks, they go and watch autopsies being done, just to uh, just to to see the, the the bodies and all the parts, the inner parts of the bodies and. And just as a, as a way of, of contemplating the dead body and contemplating on how one day I'm going to be there. In, in one of the small groups, um, one, one person mentioned um, very sadly, unfortunately, but with not so much sadness actually, facing mortal illness. And, um, and I made the comment that actually we're all facing mortal illness. And that mortal illness is life. And it's something that I think we ignore or we deny. And here the Buddha is saying, pay attention to that. And if we, if we recognize that we're all, from the moment we're born, we're all heading towards our death, and to hold that in our consciousness, how will that? Have, how does that affect the way we live? You know, we 
so often we, we live as though we're go- we, we live our lives as though we're going to live forever and we put off things that are important. And just to, to have this consciousness that we're going to end up the same as those corpses. How will that affect the way we live? And another aspect of that is seeing and, and really deeply getting that we're going to end up the same as that. You know, that body is no different from my body. How does that affect the sense of my body? Really, really worth, worth contemplating, worth reflecting on, worth giving attention to. Very important. This, this understanding of body and, and the arising of body and the passing of body. It's very important for, for coming to, to the releasing, to the letting go of that, that identification that many of us have so strongly with body. You know, there's a, a multi-billion dollar industry based on identification with body. Billions of dollars being spent on all these toxic chemicals based on identification with body. We spoke about mind, and, um, and one, one thing that stands out in this discourse for me is that the, the section on, on mind is just one paragraph. And, and, and I think it really highlights the, the, the extent to which we give importance to mind, to thoughts, to stories. And, and here very clearly the Buddha, the Buddha isn't talking about giving attention to stories. As I mentioned this morning, it's just the state of the mind, the tone of the mind. How is the mind right now? What is mind in this moment? Really giving attention to that. And then in, in all of these, the, the one paragraph, the one paragraph that gets repeated over and over again is, he abides contemplating the arising factors, abides contemplating the vanishing factors, or abides contemplating both arising and vanishing factors. Or else, mindfulness that there is a body, or there are feelings, or there is mind. Just that simple awareness, just that the simplicity of that awareness is enough. And the, the, simplicity, of that, the simplicity of that awareness is just the, the realization of body without adding on a story about the body without taking it up and making it into my body. It's just body. And the arising and vanishing factors is um, a very, very significant, perhaps the most significant statement in this whole discourse. Contemplating the arising and the vanishing factors. And, And what this is pointing at is the insight. This is pointing at the insight. And Brad spoke a little bit about insight last night. I'd like to just speak a little bit more about it this evening. This word insight is used in many different ways. We have lots of different types of insight, or what we call insight. And um, so we have a car called insight. (laughs) We have, um, I saw a... um, a, um, a condominium building one time in Toronto that was just being built and it said Insight Condominium. <laughs> the word insight is used in so many different ways. And, um, and, and it's, it's generally associated with some kind of wisdom or understanding. And, and one of the ways that we, we very commonly use the word insight is in regard to psychology. Um, 
what I, what, I, what I call psychological insights. So psychological insights are the insights that come, the, the understandings that arise from the stories. So we have, we have some issue, and we look at the story of the issue, we look at the history of it, and we explore how did this issue start, how did it get worse, what's going on here, what's my relationship, what did my mother have to do with this? <laughs> uh, and, and we explore it all, and we come to some insight. And the insight sometimes brings a kind of resolution to that story. Okay? And we call this insight. Look up insight in the dictionary. Look up insight in the dictionary. And I, I looked it up in one dictionary this afternoon. And I've looked it up in lots of dictionaries. And it's amazing how similar the, the definitions are. So the one I looked it up in today, it said, um, or yesterday, was it yesterday I looked it up? Yeah. It said, the act of or result of apprehending the inner nature of things. The act of or result of apprehending the inner nature of things. So another dictionary that I've, I've looked it up in said essentially the same thing, except it said um, intuitive apprehending. And another dictionary I looked it up in said basically the same thing. It said without thinking. Very interesting, very interesting definitions. It's really interesting to look in the dictionary and see what a word actually means and, and compare it to how we use the word. And it's, and it's interesting that the way that the dictionaries define insight is actually what the Buddha meant by insight. This phrase, apprehending the inner nature of things. So then the question is, what is the inner nature of things? And so the, the meditation, the mindfulness, and the, the investigation are the factors that direct us, that direct us into things. Direct us into things. And, and, and so the, the, the sense, we, we, we've spoken a few times about, about this sense of the, sometimes there's this sense of, of, of me, the watcher here, and the object here. And insight is, is understanding that comes from within, and that, that settling into the object. The settling into the object is the, is the, the coming into the object. And it's through that coming into the object, you're really connecting with the object. Really connecting with the object that we can come to realize the inner nature without thinking about it, without figuring it out. It's intuitive. It's, it, the understanding arises out of the actual experience not the thinking about it, not the story about it, not the memory of it, but out of the actual experience. So what is the inner nature of things? So the Buddha spoke of the inner nature of things, and in, in, in the Buddhist terminology, the, the phrase that's generally used is the true nature of things. And this phrase, the true nature of things, is, is interesting because uh, one, one thing that's interesting about it is that unlike these psychological insights that are about a particular story, the understanding that comes applies to and possibly resolves that story. And, 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 and I'm, I'm sure we've all had instances where there's been some issue and we've, we've looked at it and reflected on it and thought about it and explored it and come to some understanding that resolves it. And then a similar issue will come up. And then it's, okay, now I look at this one. And we look at that one and explore it and, and think about it and reflect on it and resolution comes. And then there's another one. And, 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 and trying, to, trying to be free from these issues in this way is endless. Because while we're resolving one issue, there's a good chance that there's another one starting up. 
And the issues that we've accumulated over this lifetime, let alone if we believe in many lifetimes, <laughs> it's going to take a long time to go issue by issue by issue. And, and so with this, this phrase, the, the inner nature of things, if an understanding is of the inner nature of things, if it's truly the inner nature of things, then it's an understanding that applies to all things. It, it doesn't only apply to this particular story or this particular object or this particular time or place or under these particular conditions. It applies across the board. And this is what the Buddha was interested in exploring. What can we say is true about anything? And so the Buddha, the Buddha identified three things that he could say met this criteria. And the first of these is the insight that he's pointing at in this phrase. Um, actually, the third one too. Three, the three of the two of the three are being pointed at here. So the arising and vanishing factors. So here's the insight into arising and vanishing. The insight into impermanence. The insight that all things are impermanent. All things change. And there's, there's absolutely nothing that we can touch, taste, hear, smell, see, feel, or think about that doesn't change. And, and to realize this, all we have to do is pay attention. All we have to do is pay attention. And we see that it's true. So we see that this body is no different than that body on the ground in the cemetery. Even after it dies and it's thrown into the child ground, it's still changing. It keeps changing. And we keep changing right through our lives. And everything keeps changing. You know, I sit here and every now and then I glance down at the clock and I see, wow, I've been talking for a long time already. And I see that because the clock is changing. The numbers are changing. The clock is obviously changing from minute to minute, literally. <laughs> and it's, it's changing at a more deep level than that, too, because if I sit here long enough, the, the whole clock, the whole structure of the clock, the battery is going to die, or the electricity is going to quit, or something, something's going to happen. It's going to change in some more subtle way, and these subtle changes are happening all the time. You know, this, this metal bowl here it looks so permanent. But if we look closely, we see, oh, it's corroding in here. It's, you know, it's sort of rusting. It's, um, it's getting tarnished. It's changing from minute to minute, just like the clock. The things that appear to be the most solid and the most permanent are changing. And so much of the way that we live is based on either an assumption or a hope <laughs> of permanence. We rely on permanence, don't we? And then when something changes, we get upset about it. <laughs> the realization of impermanence, again, allows for that <coughs> releasing. Just letting go of the hold on things, of trying to keep things the same. And the suffering that's caused by that. Trying to hold on to something that's changing. And if we just open to the fact that it's changing, and accept that, and deeply know that, there's no problem. Because we don't hold on. So contemplating the arising and vanishing of things, contemplating the impermanence. This is the true nature of things. The second, the second insight 
of the Buddha into the, the inner nature, the true nature of things, is that things are inherently unsatisfactory. And they're inherently unsatisfactory because they're changing. And because they're changing, we can't rely on things for any kind of lasting happiness. Things are unreliable for, for happiness because they're changing. And so things are said to have an inherent quality of unsatisfactoriness. And and again, if we if we if we look at if we look at things, they're changing. And it's actually it's not just because they're changing. It's again it's it's tied in with the holding that we have. If we hold on to things there's going to be unsatisfactoriness. And again, if we, if we realize this, if we deeply realize this and, and, and live a way that's based on this understanding, then there isn't the holding. So there isn't the dissatisfaction. There's great freedom in that. Freedom of mind, freedom of heart. There can be great joy in that, in that release. And the third, the third characteristic, the, the, the inner nature of things, is also very much related to here. He, he says, contemplating the arising factors and the vanishing factors. And this is, this is really a key insight. It's a, a key insight. And in the Pali language, there's a word that the Buddha frequently used, and it's the word that describes this this third characteristic, and the word is anatta. And the word anatta translates literally as without self. Without self. So what does this mean, without self? In very simple terms, what it means is things arise and vanish because of factors. The arising factors and the vanishing factors. Things come into existence, have their existence, and pass out of existence because of conditions, because of other things. Things exist only in relation to other things and only dependent on other things. So, um, some examples. Um, What's a good example here? Um, microphone. Here, I've got it in my hand. If I hold this up and say, what is this? We'd all say and we'd all agree it's a microphone. But is it really a microphone? <laughs> if we look closely at it, we see it's um, a lump of metal with a wire coming out of it. The wire is providing electricity to it. I think that's how a microphone works. <laughs> if the electricity is turned off, or if there's no electricity, or if the wire isn't plugged into something, I can talk and talk and talk into that, and it's not going to make one bit of difference. Is it still a microphone? It's only a microphone because of certain conditions that make it do what we say a microphone does. And so, so the, the mind, the mind interprets what a microphone is. And, and, and if, there's no, if there's no power coming to it or it's turned off and I hold it up, we're still going to say it's a microphone, but really we're just imagining at that point that it's a microphone. It's not a microphone until all the right conditions come together. Does that make sense? Okay, this, this, I'll hold it up and say, what's this? It's a bell. It's obvious to anyone, it's a bell. But what makes it a bell? The mind makes it a bell. When I'm holding it up like that, it's just a lump of metal in a particular shape with some corrosion on it and some tarism tarnish and it's in this shape, make a nice 
begging bowl or cereal bowl. But the mind says it's a bell. Why does the mind say it's a bell? Because it has a memory of it being a bell. So the being a bell is only exists because of the memory. And at this point, it's not really a bell. But then when I bring this up, <laughs> and I put them together, then it becomes maybe, maybe a bell. <laughs> okay? Maybe a bell. Not really. It's still not really a bell. It's not really a bell because I'm holding on to it. <laughs> When I let go, <laughs> then it becomes a bell. So it's only a bell dependent on all the right conditions coming together. And yet we say, that's a bell. And in this way, with the mind, we create. We create everything. Without the mind, without the concepts, without the words, it's just a lump of metal. Not even that, it's just a shape. Even metal. It's a concept that the mind adds on to it. One of the, um, one of the collections of, of discourses of the Buddha is called the Dhammapada. And, and the, the, one, of the, one of the opening lines of the Dhammapada is, with mind, we make the world. With mind, we make the world. And that's how it is. With mind, we, we make up all these objects. We imagine what they all are. And through that imagination, we create the world. And we do the same with the self. The self. This, this self also has arising and vanishing factors. I look at this self and I say, okay, what is this self? It's my body and my mind. And I identify with body and mind as me, as who I am. But if I look closely again at body, I see the body is changing. You know, this body is different than it was this morning. I woke up this morning and there was one body and now this body is different. You know, the beard has grown a little bit longer. It's a little bit more tired probably put on a little bit of weight from lunch and tea time. It's changed. So which body is me? The one that was this morning or the one that, was, that is now? Which body is the real me? Can I say, can I point to any one body and say, this is me? There's a, the, the, the mind creates a perception of continuity and of permanence. But actually it's changing from moment to moment to moment. And there's, n there's nothing in this body that I can hold on to and say, this is me, because by the time I finish the sentence, it's already changed. And the same with the mind. Look at the mind. Has anyone, has anyone experienced a mind today that hasn't changed? <laughs> Has anyone been able to count the times, that, the number of times that the mind has changed today? The mind changes so frequently and so quickly. The, 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 the Buddha said the mind changes so quickly that he, he couldn't come up with a simile for it. <laughs> he was great at coming up with similes. It's like saying this, well, this one, like a... Um, like the, the turner or his apprentice, feeling, feeling the wood cutting. And he has all these similes, and he said, the mind changes so fast, I can't think of a simile for it. It's just too fast. Change is too much. And yet, we, we have this idea that there's one mind that's somehow continuous, and that's me. The mind arises and vanishes dependent on factors, dependent on conditions. And the sense of me arises through the mind. Through mind, I create an image of who I am. I create an image of who I am. And this is through mind, through memory, through wishes and hopes and ideals. 
And all of these come together and I come up with an image. And if I look really carefully, sometimes don't have to look so carefully. If I look carefully, if I look, if I look at myself honestly, I can probably see, hmm, not exactly like that. We tend to ignore certain aspects of who I am. And we tend to give ourselves attributes that maybe we don't have. (laughs) We make up stories about ourselves, and out of these stories create this image of who we are. So who are we? who I am in, in any given moment. And it's not to say the, the literal translation of anatta is without self. It's not to say there is no self. It's just without selfness, without separateness. So when I look, so what is this? What is this self? And I see that in any moment, the self that, that's arising here, and the self that has this existence, and the self that's passing away is is arising and existing and passing away because of conditions. So in one moment, there's a sound coming. And that sound, in that instant, that sound is shaping who I am. I put some food in my mouth, and in that moment of, ooh, that's good, that food is shaping who I am. And I touch something, it's hot. Ooh. In that moment, that touch is shaping who I am. Our contacts with the world through all the sense doors are changing from moment to moment to moment to moment. And so who I am is changing from moment to moment to moment to moment. I hold on to an image. Hold on to an image. And so to see this, to, to see it, to, to, to see this, this conditionality, this, this interdependent existence of body-mind, of self, huh. just let go of the image. Let go of the image and allow yourself to be who you are in this moment, and then in the next moment, and in the next moment. Great freedom. Great freedom. Don't have to hold on to this image. Don't have to pretend to be someone who I think I should be, who I think other people think I should be. (laughs) Just to be who I am in this moment. Who I am is, is dependent on all these contacts. And of course, a major contact, a major part of the contact, is the contact with other people. Contact with other people. Who we are, who each one of us is, is shaped by our contacts with other people. You know, I'm sitting at the front facing in this direction because you're all there facing in this direction. And you're facing in this direction because I'm facing in that direction. So we determine each other. We create each other in a sense. So who we are in this moment, who each of us is in this moment, is dependent on each other. This is anatta. Interdependence, interconnectedness, non-separateness. This self here isn't separate from all these other selves out there. And each of these selves there aren't separate from each other. So there is no here or there. It's just this. To really deeply realize this, to to realize this, this inner nature of things, this anatta, inner nature of things, go of that one. And in that, in the, in, in the, in the letting go with the realization of the, the interconnectedness, the non-separateness, the non-separateness, the knowing that we all 
exist because of each other. We're all interconnected, interdependent. From that comes the metta, the compassion. This, this, this insight, this insight into the inner nature of things, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability, and the, the non-separateness, the interconnectedness of all things. In this understanding, this is where the freedom lies. And this is what the, the meditation is, is asking us to look into and to discover for ourselves, to uncover, to uncover for ourselves within our own beings. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe is contained within this body. We don't have to look anywhere else or go anywhere else. It's all right here and now. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.